0: UK households throw away 13.5 billion tonnes of edible food in 2015. That's 540 per household. Not in my household.
1: Not
2: in mine either.
1: 8.4 million people in the UK are in food poverty. More than 2 billion suffer from malnutrition worldwide. But the UK supermarket food waste could feed up to 3 million.
3: The UK produces the highest amount of food waste in Europe. That's shameful.
0: More than 50% of our food comes from just three crops, wheat, rice and maize. But there are more than 7,000 edible plant species in the world.
3: Nearly half of all fruit and vegetables produced globally are wasted each year.
4: Those are visitors to Kew, finding out about some of the critical problems our relationship with food is creating. But what can we actually do about this situation? This time on Unearthed, Journeys into the Future of Food from the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. we're finding out how the way we're shopping, eating, and often not eating, is ready for a shake-up. I'm James Wong, a botanist, and to me, connecting with the food you eat doesn't just mean reading the label. I'm passionate about growing food and inspiring others to do the same, And that's because our food systems connect us to almost every major issue that faces our civilization. From our health and well-being, global equality, biodiversity, climate change, livelihoods, history, and tradition. Every aspect of the human condition can be traced to our dinner plates. But if all that seems just really massive, when you're just wondering what to choose for lunch on a busy workday... Let's start the conversation at home, because I promise you, by the end of this episode, you will know what you can do today to play your part in securing our planet's future. So let's start by exploring the problem. Now, to kick things off, you might have heard of the buzzword diversity in relation to food and crops. It's exactly what it sounds like. Basically, the more different types of food you eat, the better. Studies have shown that more diverse diets can benefit nutrition and can also help improve ecosystems, making them more resilient to pests and disease. You'll be hearing a lot more about this across the series.
1: We rely too heavily on too few crops. Three crops provide 50% of our calories, something like 12 crops provide 80% of our calories, and this is too few. This also are the same crops that we use to feed. The animals that we also consume, if you lose one, then you lose a huge percentage of the food available. But also having a limited source of food or nutrients means you have a restricted diet. And we all know that a mixed diet is much better for you. You have a much better quality of food.
4: Professor Phil Stevenson looks at plant pollinators in his work. He says that we need to eat more diverse diets to help nature thrive.
1: I'm a plant chemist here at Royal Botanic Gardens Kew and I'm head of trait diversity and function. One of the challenges that I think we face with food production is that we never really see the true cost of food when we buy it or when we produce it. And there have been several very recent studies, one notable by the Rockefeller Foundation, that has shown the true cost of food is perhaps three times what we spend. And this is because there are huge consequences to the environment, consequences for conservation, and most importantly, consequences for our health, because we're producing food cheaply, intensively, and there are consequences to that. When people think they're buying a burger for $4, actually, the cost of it is $12. So the cost of food, the cost that we pay in the supermarkets, or the cost to the farmer to produce, really hides the true costs of food, the costs to the environment, and also the costs to our health, and that's a consequence of intensive production systems either at the farmers level or in processing the food and the kind of quality of food that we eat.
4: Eating a limited number of foods can have negative consequences for our health. It can make crops more vulnerable to pests and diseases and has been shown to be problematic for biodiversity and environments in general and our lifestyles and habits are making this worse.
2: The country's main export route blocked, the Ukraine will plant up to two-thirds less wheat this year, prolonging the global food crisis. Some nations, such as Lebanon and Moldova, previously imported more than 80% of wheat from the country.
4: Are you sleepwalking through the supermarket? British children have the highest levels of ultra-processed food consumption in Europe. And many of us are clueless about nutritional balance and portion size. In the UK, annual food waste creates greenhouse gas emissions equivalent to millions of cars. The average UK family throws away hundreds of pounds of food every single year. That's almost 1.2 billion pounds worth of fruit and vegetables going straight in the bin. And poor diets contribute to around 64,000 deaths in the UK every year. Not only does the food we choose to eat and waste mean our nutrition is suffering, our planet is suffering too. Our limited diets are harming children's health and the diversity of our farmed landscapes. But we need to eat.
0: What's the dinner?
4: So there's the scary stuff. But the good news is we can choose to educate ourselves to choose to cook and eat healthier, more diverse diets. We can choose to check labels for sustainability, and we can cut down our food waste and avoid unnecessary packaging. But as consumers, we're not the only people to hold the power to make change in our food systems. What's more, whether we can afford to make that change isn't always down to us. And that's because we have another flaw in where it's all coming from. Our food systems are insecure, meaning that we're not just vulnerable to economic fluctuations, but also to environmental changes, climate change, and conflict. During the 20th century, an increasing number of crops began to come from fewer and fewer areas of the planet, one of which was the Black Sea region of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. Enormous proportions of the world's most vital food staples, including wheat, maize, barley, sunflower oil, and rapeseed oil were all produced here in addition to many materials used in large-scale agriculture. Prior to the 2022 invasion of Ukraine, the country was known as the breadbasket of Europe, producing 33 million tons of cereal last year. 400 million people relied on Ukrainian exports prior to the conflict and exposed to many of us for the very first time just how fragile our food system can be.
5: Supply chains have been devastated, and food prices are now going up. People are going hungry around the world. The UN's World Food Programme is forecasting famine in parts of the world, which hasn't seen levels of hunger that severe for decades.
4: Dan Saladino is a food journalist who spent 15 years travelling the world to uncover the story of food, farming and food tradition.
5: The legacy of colonialism and economic concentration of power in some parts of the world, and also within agriculture itself, is that larger and larger amounts of the world's food are produced in a smaller and smaller number of countries. I think too much power in too few hands creates more risk for the future of our food. One in four of the world's beers drunk today are the product of one brewer. Now, they operate under many different brands, but it's one giant corporate brewer who are sourcing huge amounts of barley, for example, and other ingredients to produce much of the world's beers. The global production of poultry is mostly dependent on just three genetic lines, and those genetic lines are owned by two corporations. We buy the food, we eat it at least three times a day, but we don't ask the question of where does it come from or... As importantly, who is in control of supplying this food?
4: Whilst you and I as individuals don't have the power to stop a war or change the industrial makeup of food systems, there are powerful organisations making decisions on our behalf every day. 87% of us shop in supermarkets here in the UK, creating an industry worth more than 200 billion pounds. In fact, now, due to the cost of living crisis, we're making even more visits in search of the best deals on our groceries. So many of us depend on a commercially competitive industry for our most basic needs. But how much do supermarkets really think about social responsibility? And how are these huge companies using their wealth and weight to face up to global problems with food supply, ethics, and sustainability. Let's head to the studio to meet Anna Taylor, who heads up the Food Foundation, a charity representing citizens and their experiences with food. They work with academics, policymakers, and businesses who have influence over our food system. And they claim it's their mission to make sure everyone in Britain can eat well regardless of budget. I'm also joined by Judith Batchelor, former director of Sainsbury's and now trustee at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. So Anna, you head up the Food Foundation, which is a charity. Tell me more about what your work involves.
2: So it's all about trying to put the onus really on the food system to make it easier for us rather than expecting individual customers, consumers to do all the heavy lifting and work out which foods they should be eating and read the labels and do all those other things which they need to do in order to get themselves on a healthy and sustainable path.
4: And how important is this focus on policy in the industry rather than consumers?
2: It's really vitally important because many of our decisions about what we eat are governed by the environment in which we're making those decisions. So that's everything from the price of something is the sugary yoghurt cheaper than the natural yoghurt or the other way round, for example? How appealing is it? Has it been advertised to us? What's the packaging like? Where's it positioned and is it readily available to us? Is our high street just full of fast food, chicken shops and so forth, or is there somewhere that, where you can get fresh fruits and vegetables? So all of these environmental factors have a massive sway over what we end up buying and eating and so getting that environment right is really vital if we're going to be able to help people to eat well
4: how's the food industry contributing to the problems that we face around food
2: to be honest they're playing a hugely important role because they are essentially the gatekeepers to our diets their commercial drives are so deeply entrenched in the system that it's very difficult for companies to break away from that without taking a commercial hit.
4: I'd like to bring you in here, Judah. One of the things that I think is fascinating about having a market that's dominated by a limited number of really large players is that in theory, decisions could be made very quickly and easily with a limited number of people with a huge amount of influence. But with great power comes great responsibility. And there's, there's so many other factors that those people are thinking about. So can you tell me as someone who's in the know who's worked in all different aspects of the industry, what are them on the minds of supermarket heads day to day? And where in that list of priorities comes up responsibility for the planet?
6: I think most supermarket executives are trying to juggle multiple things throughout the course of a working day. And actually, they're all the things that Anna's talked about. You know, how do you do the best for the health of your customers? Because actually, you want your customers to lead long, healthy, happy lives and eating healthy, affordable, fresh, tasty food. I mean, that's what we all want. But at the same time, you're having to think about how those products are sourced, the sustainability, the supply chains that sit behind that and, and actually the people in those supply chains. So most supermarkets will legally have a duty of care, not just to customers and selling them safe food and healthy well-labeled food but also to the supply chains and the people working in those supply chains and also to the planet and the good news is we've got a lot of data and a lot of technology that can help you be more thoughtful about those calories where they've come from and how you prioritize those multiple asks
4: aside from policy when we look at the the power that supermarkets wield you know they're often accused of being singularly focused on maximising profit margins at the expense of people and planet. Do you think that they are changing and is this change being done in a meaningful way?
2: I think they are changing slowly. I don't think change is nearly fast enough and they're certainly not changing across the board. There's a big difference between some of the more progressive companies and companies which have not made this issue a priority. In terms of how meaningful the change is, I think probably one of the most interesting developments in the last few months has been that the government is going to be requiring large food companies to report a set of sales metrics. For example, they'll be asking supermarkets to report on the proportion of their sales which are healthy versus unhealthy foods, or plant-based protein versus animal protein. And while in and of itself this isn't going to immediately change what's on the shelves, it does equip the public because this data will become publicly available and it equips policymakers and the shareholders of companies and the leadership of companies with a set of data that we, we can very easily see whether companies are going in the right direction or not and which companies are doing better than others.
6: I think everyone would agree it's going to be better for the world and better for our own health if we all ate more fruit and veg and we all had more fibre in our diet yeah. and we all ate a little less dairy and we all less less red meat because I think we can make some generic statements And when we don't, that's when it becomes confusing for people. And particularly when what I would call the the experts don't agree, which quite often you will get academic debate around the various merits of certain diets. But I think at a very top level, we are so far away from what a healthy diet looks like that any progress we could make towards that would be brilliant
4: one of the the hallmarks of a uh, healthy and sustainable food system is affordability but as with many of these metrics built into that is a trade-off because a part of that the the total cost of food is paying suppliers and you know part of ethics is paying suppliers a sustainable wage that actually makes a difference and that actually can be continued into the future so how do supermarkets aim to strike that balance or do they
6: i think there are t- two separate things there are Paying a fair price to a producer, which is normally primary agriculture, so a, a grower, a, a, a farmer, you know, producing livestock, whatever that might be. There is then, are the people in the supply chain that are employees well rewarded? So there is regulation around the due diligence that a supply chain has to show to the people in that supply chain from a living wage minimum wage point of view. So that's pretty straightforward because you can check that, you can audit that, and you can hand on heart say, I I know that the people that are working in this supply chain who are being employed are being paid properly. When it comes to very far up the supply chain, you lose visibility of that. So one of the things that can't always be guaranteed is the price that you're paying the supplier is the price the producer is getting, And some of the things that have been explored in the past but haven't gone very far, which is a real shame, is the use of supply chain transparency on cost of goods. Because, of course, those things are commercially sensitive and no one wants to tell you what they're paying their grower or their producer. But I do think in the current climate because of what's happening around security of supply, very different motivation, that those things are going to have to be made more transparent because for the first time, the food system cannot rely on the food that they want to purchase being there. Now, whether that's sunflower oil because of what's happening in Ukraine or whether it's other parts of the world that are suffering crises, You know, think about what's going on in East Africa at the moment,
4: Tell me about transparency in supermarket supply chains. Um, in theory, having a few small players in an industry would mean that you could have more transparency rather than an, a huge web of thousands of individual players. How how good are they at being transparent?
2: Well, I don't think they're very good at all, to be honest, because the supply chains are so unbelievably complicated particularly, of course, for processed products. And now about 60% of our calories in the UK come from foods which are what we call ultra-processed to get them to the point where they're the food that we're eating. And you can't tell that story on a label. You can't tell it in an ingredients list, really. You can't provide that information for people in ways which are really digestible. We need to get the food industry to move in a way where customers can trust that those supermarkets are doing the right thing not just supermarkets all the you know all all the different players in the food industry and that's where policy is needed to create that level playing field because there'll be some that are doing the right thing and others that aren't and we don't really have a very good way of distinguishing one from the other at the moment so it's all about trying to make those day-to-day decisions a lot easier to get, make those decisions well, in a way which protects your health, the health and the environment, rather than relying on us as citizens having to know exactly what we should be buying and read the labels and do all that work ourselves. We want the food system to make it easier for us.
4: Supermarkets, retail and food manufacturers throw away around 100,000 tonnes of edible food items in the UK alone every year. How can we face the challenges of waste when so many people are going hungry?
6: Hopefully by the end of this year, the government will mandate food waste reporting according to the protocol. So we know that we've got a level playing field. We will be able to see where that food is going. Because there will always be waste in the system. But at the moment, that waste isn't transparent. It's only transparent when it gets to the retail end of things. But actually, depending on where you are in the world, as much food is wasted upstream, um, so post-harvest, as in the Western world, wasted downstream. In people's uh, homes. In people's homes and in supermarkets and the retail supply chains.
4: It sounds like this new revolution in data and growing consumer interest seems like it could be a bit of a you know a, a bit of a game changer.
2: Yeah, I mean I think it is potentially a game changer. I'm feeling quite pessimistic about the next the next year or so. I the reason being that I think the pressures on families with the cost of living crisis are really so immense mm-hmm. and what inevitably that does is it pushes people into buying the cheapest forms of calories which are often got very low levels of nutrients in them and I just think we're we're storing up a set of health problems for ourselves as a nation which are just accumulating year on year and what that actually plays out in terms of life expectancy at the moment is between an 18 and 20 year difference in healthy life expectancy between the haves and the have nots in Britain and that's a huge amount of time of you know time where you might meet your grandchildren and have time with them or, or, the, or not. So I think the urgency around thinking about how we can incentivise a system to make healthy and affordable and sustainable food, the norm, is really urgent. And I don't feel at the moment that we've got the right level of political commitment behind it.
7: Hi, I'm Tanya Schultz. I'm an artist from Australia, and I work under the name Pip and Pop. We're here at my exhibition, When Flowers Dream, in the Shirley Sherwood Gallery at Kew Gardens. It's part of the Food Forever program that runs across the gardens this summer. I'm fascinated by fictional geographies and paradise mythologies, places where we can escape our earthly realities. These places may or may not exist, are often found by chance, and they're impossible to locate again once you leave. I think they can be seen as illusory places where we project our dreams and desires. I'm particularly interested in food utopias, those mythical lands of plenty where you can have everything you desire. Some of my favourites include Pay de Cocaine, a mythology from France, Laue Leckerland from the Netherlands, and Schlaraffenland, which is a German mythology. In these places, the streets are paved with pastries. The houses are built from cakes, mountains are made of pudding, and cheeses rain from the sky. People created stories and songs and maps of these places as a way to escape their reality and to imagine a better future where there would be abundant food especially during medieval times. These lands of plenty were seen not as escapist fantasies, but rather cautionary tales of gluttony. There's also so many fascinating folk tales throughout history that feature fruits and seeds, like peaches that provide immortality or plums that lead to a hidden world. We've created a wallpaper here in this part of the gallery It's a large digital collage created from hundreds of images of edible plants, fruits and seeds, with a focus on those ones that are considered neglected or underutilised food species. The wallpaper also includes images of small sculptures I've created of food species such as the baobab, the enset or false banana, sausage tree, pandanus, um, wild yams. As climate change impacts our environment, these plants may hold the key to food scarcity issues in the future. In the video, the food plants swirl and spin and float around. I wanted to show you these plants and fruits at large scale to elevate them and to emphasize their beauty and their potential. And here we've created an installation in the main gallery space from thousands of objects we made in our studio in Australia and here at Kew. We use a lot of sugar in various forms. Every person that helps create the work adds something special to it. It's a fantastical landscape full of future foods, both real and imagined. I hope this exhibition helps to highlight some of the food plants that Q scientists have identified as future foods. There are thousands more edible plants we could be utilising, and I hope it allows visitors to imagine a better world.
4: Plenty of us enjoy foods that we haven't bought in supermarkets, all made ourselves. The UK hospitality industry has been through hard times during the COVID-19 pandemic. But today, restaurants are still a 19 billion pound industry, meaning our love of eating out remains. But choosing restaurants with sustainable credentials can be hard when you don't know where they source their ingredients from. And how easy is it anyway for restaurants to shift to a more sustainable agenda in a tough economy? Across the summer of 2022, guest chefs Zoe Ajonya, Anna Jones, Tom Hunt, and Dr. Rupi took over the menu at the Pavilion Bar and Grill with their entirely plant-based, sustainable menus. So what did the public make of this meat-free and diverse menu? Professor Phil Stevenson spoke with Q's head chef, Gary Morris.
1: Hi Gary, very nice to meet you. And yourself? So I'm a vegetarian of about 30 years, and so I've uh, noticed that in the last two or three years the amount of meat-free food available in restaurants has changed quite dramatically. Have you noticed the same thing? Is there a change in what customers are requiring?
3: There is definitely a massive change, and it doesn't look like it's going to stop. It's Plant-based and plant-focused foods is is where we're going to be.
1: How do you plan a meat-free diet?
3: There's a lot of planning involved. There's a lot of do's and don'ts that we all know about and it's all about getting your proteins in. So how many covers do you have a day here at the Pavilion restaurant? We can have anything between 100 to 400 within about two hours. Wow. Well, the great thing with this, these set of menus is you'll get no waste because the ethos of these chefs is 100% on zero food waste. So literally everything, peelings, everything is all, all used within sauces. We've probably got... 5% of the waste that we'd normally have if, if yeah. it was a meat and a veg diet. So this is Zoe's menu. What's on the menu today? We've got loads of char-grilled plantains, spinach and agusi, jollof rice. We've got yam and sweet potato curry. Lots and lots of uh, Ghanaian flavours, spices. Uh, it's a fantastic menu. Ghanaian yeah. food is, is is a challenge to somebody that's not seen it or tasted it before. But just giving them a little taster... They soon change their mind.
1: So at Kew we're very interested in diversifying the cropping systems and the foods that we rely on to provide our calories. And I'm from a generation of sausage and mash for tea. <laughs> Do you think that in your time as a chef you've seen that diversity in, in foods change? You say that Ghanaian is challenging for people, but of course 20, 30 years ago most people would never have come across it.
3: It is, and I think now with, with TV, the way it is, you know, everybody can be a chef these days. There's a lot of understanding. There's, there's all these new ingredients that a lot of us wouldn't have even heard of, like you say, 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Now they're a bit more sort of common to us. It's, it's so diverse now. Like the flavours that you can produce it is definitely not boring. It's very, very tasty and commercially viable. Yeah, And healthy. There's been something from every menu that's excited me, playing with different flavours, different herbs and spices. And has anything popped up that you've never even heard
1: of or come across before?
3: This Ghanaian menu is, is there's a <laughs> lot in there that is, is amazing. You know, alligator pepper, things like this that I've never even heard of. Yeah. And meeting Zoe and working with Zoe opened my eyes to all of this.
1: And um, what about the customers? Have there been some favourites with the customers?
3: Yes, th- this menu particularly, the the yam and sweet potato curry is amazing, and I don't think that they want it to come
4: off the menu. There are some amazing smells coming from the Pavilion Bar and Grill kitchen on a busy afternoon. We'll be hearing lots more from our guest chefs later in this series as they share their outlook on how we can all embrace more diverse ingredients, shop sustainably, and fall in love with making healthy, exciting menus in our own kitchens. No sausage and mash required. In fact, if you're keen to source some of the Ghanaian ingredients Gary mentioned, Zoe Ajonya joins us later in the series and shares her tips for shopping for world ingredients in markets locally and responsibly. And on the subject of cooking in our own homes, there's a food waste revolution happening in your neighborhood.
0: Hi, I'm Tessa Clark, co-founder and CEO of Olio. Olio is an app that exists to tackle the enormous problem of food waste and also waste more generally in our homes and local communities. And we do that by connecting people with their local community so you can give away your spare food and other household items instead of throwing it away. Now, I'm a farmer's daughter, so I know from first-hand experience just how much hard work goes into producing food. And as a result of that, to me, food waste is akin to a crime. So how it works is really simple. Perhaps you are... Going away on holiday and you've got some food that you're not going to eat, you snap a photo to add it to the app. People living nearby get an alert, letting them know that something new has been added near them. They can then browse the listings, request what they want, and pop round and pick it up. And what's really incredible about this is just how strong... The demand is because a lot of people might think well anyone really want my spare food and the answer is a massive resounding yes so the average item of food that is added to the app is requested in less than 21 minutes. Globally a third of all the food we produce each year gets thrown away which is worth over a trillion US dollars. Alongside that widespread food waste we have equally widespread hunger There are over 800 million people who go to bed hungry and they could be fed on just one quarter of the food we waste in the Western world. And as if all that weren't bad enough, the environmental impact of food waste is absolutely devastating. If it were to be a country, food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China. And collectively, food waste accounts for roughly 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions globally. And the reason for this incredibly negative environmental impact of food waste is because a land mass larger than China is used every single year to grow food that is never eaten. So that is land that has been deforested, soil that has been degraded, species that have been driven to extinction, indigenous populations that have been displaced, and also one quarter of humanity's fresh water is used to grow food that's never eaten. That food then goes on a really, really long supply chain generally. And when a third of it gets thrown away, the majority of that ends up in landfill. And food waste gives off methane when it's in landfill. And methane is 25 times more deadly than CO2. So it is no exaggeration to say that food waste is one of the biggest problems facing humanity today. And as we look To the future, we have another 2 billion people joining the planet by 2050. And according to the FAO, in order to feed us all, we need to increase global food production by 60%. And today, we don't know how we're going to achieve that, which makes it even more crazy that we're throwing away a third of all the food we produce. Perhaps the sort of most crazy stat of all is the fact that in a country such as the UK, half of all food waste takes place in the home. So that means that we are half of that enormous problem that I have just outlined, uh, which is incredibly depressing. But if you flip it on its head, it can actually be really exciting because that means that we can be half the solution. The reason why we waste so much food in the UK, I believe, is because we are no longer connected to our local community. We no longer have anyone to give our spare food to. Our community tell us that as a result of using Oleo, They feel safer because they now actually know who people in their own local community are, often for the first time. And so those people are looking out for them and helping and supporting them. And they also just tell us that it makes them feel very empowered because I think, let's face it, there's a lot in the world right now that is pretty overwhelming and pretty depressing. And knowing that you are having that positive impact both on the planet, but also for someone in your local community is fantastic.
4: We're leading a revolution to tackle food waste in our streets, communities, and food caddies. But next, it's down to industry to tackle its own responsibility. The consultation carried out by the British government in 2022 announced that in future, businesses will be required to publicly report their food waste data, meaning that the way we look at the value of a business isn't just about how much profit it makes, but also how much it works to protect our global environment too. In the next episode, Adverley's exploring how the foods we eat connect to world biodiversity, with surprising facts on how the foods in your kitchen cupboard today could be set to disappear tomorrow
7: a lot of these species are disappearing because of habitat destruction. With the change of climate, for example, even these well-known crops, they might not survive to the climatic changes. So again, we risk to have a future. with really
2: limited diversity of food plants and food products.
4: Plus, we'll be heading underground to a bunker in Sussex where world-leading research is taking place to study store and preserve the world's plant species i'm james wong and thanks for listening to unearthed from the royal botanic gardens Kew. you could follow or subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app and check out our other episodes too